Hey, I have about 25 minutes to cover what I want to cover this morning. You guys have been in a series on the Lord's Prayer, yes? Have you enjoyed it? Good. I'm glad to hear that. The Lord's Prayer uh, is precious to me. Um, I've been in the church all my life, and the Lord's Prayer has been an anchor point for my faith, helping me define and understand what it means to follow Jesus. And so I get to cover the last little bit of the Lord's Prayer this morning, and I have a really specific challenge that I want to lay at your feet. So before we get into it, why don't we just open um, with a word of prayer by inviting the Holy Spirit among us. Just still yourself, center yourself. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, the psalmist says. Who may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who doesn't lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord. Vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek your face. Those who seek your face, O God of Jacob. So God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are here. We believe that there is uh, never been a time that you have not been speaking. Never a time in human history when you have not been drawing humanity to your feet in worship. There has never been a time when you haven't been calling us in some way to experience true humanness in you. True humanness in you. So we pray that as we wrestle with some of these words of Jesus, this prayer, that we would be led into the heart of God and all the places where we are living in active rebellion against the offer of life, that you would help us see how patently absurd that is and help us then tip over into faith. We're praying that this morning. Make it so. We ask that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 6, if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. Here are the words of the famous Lord's Prayer according to Jesus. There's a parallel to this text in the book of Luke. Um, in which the disciples, what provoked Jesus' words here were that the disciples had asked Jesus, you know, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples. And he goes, well, here, here are some words for you to use. When you pray, just do it like this. Say these things. And Luke's version is a little bit different than Matthew's version, but you can, you can tell that there's a common core, a common root. And um, these words are so beautiful. So here we are, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This, then, Jesus says, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That to me, now we call this prayer the Lord's Prayer. And rightfully so, because it's our Lord who taught it to us. But I think it actually might be more apt, and some people have referred to this as the disciples' prayer. Jesus is sort of giving these words, and each one of them, if you ask me, each one of the lines and phrases 
is a window into kingdom reality. Everything is here. All of the great concerns of our discipleship and our life with God are here in the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, we begin with the name of God. Our Father. That we come to name this God that Jesus called Father, and by His Spirit, the Father of Jesus becomes our Father too. And He's our Father not just in isolation, it's not my Father, but it's our Father. Like we're in the, like the, the first two words of the Lord's Prayer put us in the church. He goes, hey, you're, you have God as your father and the spirit is binding you together and Jesus Christ is your Lord and your elder brother and you have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers around you. Welcome to the Lord's Prayer. Welcome to the church, right? Our father in heaven. The Greek is entois uranois. It's not just heaven singular, but the Greek stipulates the plural, the heavens, layers of the heavens. So that God is not a being rattling around in outer space, but God is near. He's close to us. And so as we begin to say the words of this prayer, realities of who God is and where we are situated in his world begin to dawn on us. We pray for the hallowing of his name. We're asking that God's name would be universally sanctified in love. We're praying that his kingdom would come, that his active rule would come crashing into our time, that his will would be done on earth just like it's done in heaven. And with that, we are already in the great global and cosmic work of God. The prayer puts us in the story. And it goes, what I love about the prayer, and this is so fascinating, scholars will say that this prayer is very different from contemporary Jewish prayers of the day, in that a lot of the Jewish prayers start with daily bodily needs, and then it goes to the big and the cosmic. But the Lord's Prayer starts with the cosmic, and then, like, it pivots, turns on a dime, and it gets down into the very minute, the granular, the daily. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We're saying, God, we need to eat today. We have material needs today that if you don't supply these needs, we're not going to make it. God, we have fractured relationships today. Relationships in which we are imbalanced in fundamental ways. They're out of sorts. Forgive us our sins and impositions against you, just like we are forgiving the sins and impositions of others. Would you let shalom, would you let reconciliation, would you let healing of relationships steal into our lives? And wherever the enemy is trying to impinge upon our lives, we're asking Lord Jesus for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do you see how all of the great concerns of discipleship are carried in the Lord's prayer? Do you see that? That's why this prayer is such an important prayer to pray, to internalize, to meditate on. We have four kids. I've been married for almost 18 years to my wife, Mandy, and we have four kids, Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam, and we taught the kids the Lord's Prayer from a very, very early age. And when we do uh, most meals that we do, we say the Lord's Prayer, and I love it because even if the kids don't understand the depth of it, and heck, I don't understand the depth of it. And I've been living it for 36 years. Even if they don't understand the depth of it, it has this way of cracking open a window to another reality. And so I'll say to our little five-year-old Liam, I'll say, Liam, can you lead us in prayer today? And he just knows how to do it. Our Father, he says, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
there's this sense that we are put in the kingdom of God by the Lord's Prayer. And so as a parent, I get to use the Lord's Prayer as a frame of reference for talking about how we're trying to follow Jesus together, how we're trying to live kingdom together. Remember when the shooting in Las Vegas, 50 people died uh, last fall, I think it was? That morning, let me tell you what was a huge comfort to us, was being able to go to the Lord's Prayer We sat down and we did breakfast that next morning and we prayed the words of the Lord's Prayer and I was able to look the kids in the eye and say to them, guys, what happened in Las Vegas is from hell. And we get together every day and we pray this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I asked them, do you think that that was the will of God? No. I said, we are the followers of Jesus And what it means to be the followers of Jesus is that we are pleading with God for peace on earth. We're pleading with God for gentleness on earth. We're pleading with God for reconciled relationships. We're pleading with God that the things that go wrong in the human mind and soul that cause us to take up acts of violence against each other, that those would come to a decisive end. Do you guys understand that? It's discipleship. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We're praying, we're putting ourselves at God's mercy. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you don't know how to pray, pray this. If you have a difficult time getting a devotional life working, pray this. Jesus gave it to you. It is his great gift to you to help you pray rightly. One of the things that I have done sometimes when my prayer life, I felt like it was stalling out a little bit, is that I would just dedicate myself to praying the words of the Lord's Prayer. And so I would go, I would get in my quiet space, center my heart, and then I would just go line by line. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I would stop and meditate on that. And think on it. And let it get down into my heart. And you know, one of the things that theologians will teach is that the scripture has this way, the word has a way of calling forth its own response. That when it gets in us, it also awakens something in us. And so I'd sit there with those words. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I'd find prayer waking up. Father, thank you that you are Father. And thank you that you have bound my life together with other brothers and sisters. And thank you that you're not far, but you're near. And thank you, thank you that you are sanctifying your name today. Thank you that you're making holiness around the world today. Thank you that you're bringing your kingdom today. Thank you that your will is being accomplished today. It had this way of like pushing me out. So if you don't know how to pray, pray this. Go line by line and situate the concerns of your life in the context of this prayer. I can almost guarantee you that you're going to find yourself racing forward in in prayer in a way that's really unusual. Now, that was all introduction. So you might notice when you look back down at your text, if you have your Bibles, that there's a line that we say traditionally in the church that's not in the text here in Matthew. So verse 13, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. And the traditional versions of the Lord's Prayer go on by saying what? There's audible murmuring, but somebody, one courageous person, say it real loud for all of us to hear. How does it usually conclude? 
Wow! Thank you, courageous person. For thine is the kingdom, right? And the power and the glory forever and ever. That's right. But it's not in the Bible. And Josh asked me to preach on it, and I said, this is the first time I think I've ever been asked to preach on something that's not exactly in the Bible. It's not in this text of the Lord's Prayer, but I think it is biblical, okay? It is biblical. And there are three, there are a few different reasons why I think, so I'm going to get real technical here for a second. Do you know that we don't actually have the original manuscripts of the Bible? Do you know that? The Bible is not like, some people believe that it's like this book that floated down out of the clouds and it landed on like a a, a, a golden pedestal. No, we know it's human. The Bible is a very human product. People made it, and then they wanted to circulate it, so they made copies. And then they wanted to circulate it more, so they made copies of copies. And then sometimes those copies of copies, some people went, wait, I think that there's a thing here that needs to be corrected, or, ooh, I know what could make this better. And people would add things, and the copies would circulate. And so there's this science called textual criticism, where what you do is you take the copies of the copies of the copies that we have, and you try to approximate as close as you can what the original manuscript might have said. And so when you look through some of the manuscripts, the copies that we have of the New Testament, you see that in the second and the third and the fourth century, people start adding little additions that sound a lot like, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. They start adding those things as a way of, I think, rounding out the prayer a little bit. You get the feeling that the Lord's Prayer was very much used by people in the early church as a way of orienting the heart to God. So there are three reasons I can think of that um, they might have included this addition of for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. I'll give you the first one here. The first one is, uh, I think it gives it conceptual balance, that we start with kingdom and we end with kingdom. So it causes the, the prayer to be a bit more symmetrical. I also think reason number two You can put the next slide up. I'm very dependent on you back there, Gabriel. Uh, Reason number two is aesthetics, poetics, and doxology. I think it just kind of makes sense. Like, isn't it poetically just nicer? Instead of just ending with the devil, deliver us from the evil one, we go, okay, yeah, but but there's got to be more to say, right? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That, That it pushes out into doxology. But there is, I think, a deeper and more fundamental reason, and this is what I want to try to push to you today. Reason number three that that word for indicates a sort of causative uh, uh, relationship. For is an acknowledgement. For thine is the kingdom. So we ask all these things, and then for thine is the kingdom. I think that this is an acknowledgement that only you, God, are able to do all of this. Only you, God, are able to do all of this. Only you can accomplish the sanctifying of your name. Only you can bring about the kingdom of God. Only you really can feed us. Only you can rectify our relationships with each other. And only you really can deliver us from the evil one. This concluding line puts us right smack in the middle of radical dependence, trust in God. From the very beginning, the scripture is a story of radical dependence on God. Remember, Israel's life really began when she was withering away in Egypt. And the Lord redeemed her with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. When she was helpless to take care of herself, God came to her rescue, helped her, led her out of Egypt. And when she was stuck at the Red Sea with the Egyptians bearing down on her, what happened? It was God, by a miracle, parted the waters of the Red Sea and she marched through on dry ground. And when the Egyptians tried to follow them through, what happened? 
The waters closed up over. And when Israel gets to the other side, she says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Israel's life was birthed by a miraculous act of God. And God's will for his people was that they would continue to see their lives as continually birthed by a miraculous act of God. That they don't graduate from that act of God, but they live in the act. They continue to live in the kindness. They continue to live in the grace of God on a daily basis. By the time you get to the 123rd Psalm, you hear the psalmist saying things like this. This is after Israel has been established in the land. This is after the enemies of God have been put down and there's peace. Still, the psalmist is saying words like this. Listen, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in the heavens. And as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, and as the eyes of the maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. For we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. As the eyes of slaves look to the hands of their master. That's almost offensive to us in our 21st century Western society, isn't it? Because in our minds, the goal of life is that we're not dependent on anybody. The eyes of slaves, what? No, I'm me. And I'm wonderful and worthwhile and beautiful and competent. Don't make me pray that. But the psalmist goes, no, 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 no. You have to understand that your life is dependent on God on a moment-by-moment, miraculous kind of basis. Are you with me this morning? Jesus brings this to a stunning and beautiful conclusion in his ministry, Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So he called a little child to him and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like what? Little children. You can't even get into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, I tell you, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Unless you change and become like little children. You know what that word for change is in Greek? It's epistrepo. Can I hear you say epistrepo? It functions in almost a technical sense in the New Testament to talk about the process of conversion. And you know what Jesus is saying? that there is a conversion that we need to go through away from self-reliance, away from self-aggrandizing schemes, away from thinking that we can be the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul and into a place of radical dependence upon God. And in that place of radical dependence upon God, wonder is restored. Innocence is restored. All of the things that God wants for us are restored. It's a technical term to talk about conversion. I would say like this, you can put the next slide up. That the lie that we are constantly being told in our society is that if we rise in our money, we rise in our power, we rise in our competency, or we rise in our achievement, we will be able to secure ourselves. That's the lie. That there's this like moment that you're going to get to in life where all of a sudden you're secure against the vicissitudes of life. You're secure 
against all of the things that can happen to you. And so you don't have any needs anymore. That's the big lie is that if we rise in money, power, competency, or achievement, we will be able to secure ourselves. And you guys right now are in that zone in life where that is on you in a huge way. You're going, okay, I'm in college. And when I finish college, I got to get that job. And I get the job. And when I get that job, then I'll have enough money. And I won't have to ask my parents for money anymore. Won't be dependent on anybody, right? And it's just a huge lie. The life of faith actually from beginning to end is a life of radical dependence upon God. And in Christian parlance, the technical term for this, rising in money, power, competency, or achievement so that we can secure ourselves against fate or uncertainty or whatever, the technical term for this is pride. This is a species of pride. And you know what pride does to the human soul? It destroys it utterly. All of the things that make us human, all of the things that lead to intimacy and awe and wonder and relationship, pride cuts those things at the root. The great St. Augustine has this wonderful moment in his book. He has this long treatise on the Trinity. And he talks about pride. And he says, you know, man was designed to live in an ongoingly dependent relationship with God. But every once in a while, man decides to make a trial of his own power and rise up in who he is against God. And he says the paradox of man trying to rise up against God, divorcing himself from his sense of need in God, is that as man goes up by himself, he actually gets thrust downward. He says the dignity of man, the dignity of man is to live in dependence on God But when we try to rise up against God, what happens, he says, is we get thrust down and we become like the beasts. The milk of human kindness is lost. The fruit of the spirit is lost. Everything is lost. I remember seeing this up close and personal, and you can see it everywhere, um, in our society and in your own life. And some of you have family members and friends that you've watched them sort of go on this you know, narcissistic quest of self-actualization against God, and it destroys them. I remember seeing it. I worked when I was in graduate school. I worked at this restaurant in the Chicagoland area. It was one of the most successful restaurants in the United States. It was like a top five grossing restaurant in terms of sales. And the guy, uh, the guy who started the restaurant is a man by the name of Bob. He had had some, uh, he had had some failed restaurant ventures through his first, you know, 20 or 30 years of working life. And then when he was about 50, 55 years old, he launched this concept and it became wildly successful. And here's the thing about Bob. As successful as he was, he was mean as a snake, just a dirt ball, and totally full of himself. And when he walked in the room, it was the Bob show. And Bob is here now. And Bob just like sucked up all of the, sucked the air out of the room, you know? He was just one of those guys. And I remember it was a busy Friday night, Saturday night or something, and I was working, I was a host at this restaurant. And uh, I needed, I was at one of the, there are many host stands because we had many checkpoints to try to get people in and sit, sit them down. And the stand that I was working on, I was out of menus and I needed to have menus to give them to people as they were coming in. And so I remember jumping on the walkie-talkie and I go, hey, I need menus. And nobody brings menus. I get on there a little bit later. I need menus, menus at the middle host stand, please. I need menus. Nobody comes. I'm like panicking at this point. I go, guys, I need, I'm jammed with people up here and I need menus. Somebody send menus up here, please. No menus. Bob comes by and I'm standing there just feeling all forlorn, you know, like I can't get any help around here. And Bob comes up to me and he goes, where are the menus? I go, I don't know. I've asked for them three times. I can't get anybody to bring me menus. 
He goes, give me that walkie-talkie. He grabs the walkie-talkie. He goes, hey, this is Bob. We need menus at the middle host stand right now. Of course, employees come scurrying from every corner of the restaurant <laughs> with the menus, right? And so pretty, now I've got this huge stack of them, and the employees scurry away. Actually, they put them in Bob's hand. I remember this. They put them in Bob's hand, and the employees scurry away, and he puts them in my hand. And I kind of look at him like, thank you. I mean, it was like this awkward moment between us. And he says, I'll never forget this. He goes, that's why I am me. That's why you're going to hell for like a week and a half, at least. (laughs) What? But that's what, that was the lie at the center of his soul. Look at who I am. Beautiful, powerful, amazing, me, right? What Bob did not realize is that all of his employees hated him. The jackal to be around him because of pride. Destroyed the human soul. The great 13th century Italian poet Dante, in his divine comedy, it's this beautiful poetic journey through hell and up through purgatory and then up into the heavens to see God. And it's this wrestling with the reality of human sin. And when he gets to purgatory, purgatory is a mountain that you have to climb. A seven-story mountain corresponds to the seven deadly sins. And you know what the foot of the mountain is? What the sin that's dealt with there is? It's pride. The most fundamental human failure is pride, always pride. And do you know what the punishment for the prideful is? They have to carry these huge boulders on their backs. And it symbolizes two things for Dante. Number one, it symbolizes the sheer weight of ego. Ego is a heavy burden. Carrying around that sense that I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul and nobody can tell me what to do and I'm the best and I have to become even better than I am now, it's a heavy weight. But it's also the second thing for Dante is that that is part of the purification because it pushes you, it pushes the human being back into the dirt. Do you know the Latin root for humility is also the same root that we get the word soil from? We are made of the dirt And God's dream for us is not to rise up beyond the dirt and become something else, but to just accept what we are and accept that we're loved in that. Do you remember how the psalmist put it in Psalm 103? He says, the Lord knows what we are. He remembers that we are, do you know it? Dust. We're not called to graduate from faith. We're not called to graduate from our sense of radical dependence upon God. But actually, the deepest truth of our existence is that we're radically dependent upon God at every moment. And the further you advance in faith, it's not a, you don't rise up as an equal with God. The further you advance in faith is the further you advance in a sense of your dependence upon God. The great scholastic theologian Thomas Aquinas, another 13th century Italian guy, you know what he said? Here's the quote. You can put it up on the screen. Humilitas est veritas. Humility is truth. Humility is truth. My question that I want to ask you this morning is where in your life are you trying to secure yourself outside of your sense of radical dependence upon God? And I'm here to tell you this morning that wherever you're trying to do that, it's a fool's errand. It is a fool's errand. And it's outside of the will of Jesus for you. 
the Lord's Prayer puts you in a place of radical dependence upon God. It pushes you to a place where you go, God, if you don't come through for me, um, I'm lost. Like, I'm hopeless. And I say this to you as a guy that's been in this journey with Jesus for a pretty significant length of time. I do remember thinking when I was younger in faith, 17, 18, 19, I had this, um, I don't know why I had this, but I think it was just kind of like it, it, it was there. It was like this sense that once I just, if I just clear this next hurdle, whatever it is, then I'll feel safe and secure in my life, you know? So when I just finish high school and get in college and really lock into that thing, then I'll feel really good about it. And I remember getting there and I went, wow, this is really precarious, you know? College is like scary and it's full of big decisions and the stakes feel like they've just gone up. And so I remember thinking to myself, well, I just have to, if I just uh, finish college, and I get that first job, then that'll be the thing that really makes me feel secure. And I finished up college, and I actually, instead of getting the job, maybe I was just too scared to get a job, I went on to graduate school. Yet I got into graduate school, and I remember thinking to myself, okay, graduate school is really great, but man, it just feels like the stakes like, keep going up here in life. Well, when I finish graduate school, and I get like that first ministry job, that'll be it. You know, I just get the ministry job, the job I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I got that job, and there were more question marks around all of that, and more uncertainty. And so I remember thinking to myself, well, when I just, okay, but that's only because I'm kind of in this associate role. And once I do the thing I'm really designed to do in life, I think I just need to like strike out and make something happen for myself. And so we moved to Denver in 2009. We helped plant a church and talk about going from scary to really scary. We had a room of young people just like you, except there were about 25% of this room. It was like 50 or 60 people and none of them had any money. And we were trying to build a church out of that. And I had three kids where am I? I would lay awake at night sometimes thinking, God, if you don't, I swear, like, we need $4,000 in the offering tomorrow. And if that doesn't happen, we're going to be dumpster diving as a family. We need you, God. It just got scarier and scarier. And I remember thinking in the middle of that, I remember thinking, well, just when this church gets financially sustainable, then things will feel less scary. And it got financially sustainable, and still the sense of dependence was there. And this is what I know now that I did not know early in my journey is that the saints understand that the journey of holiness is a journey in acknowledging our radical dependence. And you never, if you're in a place where you feel life feels pretty scary, kind of precarious, I'm just here to tell you, this is like the most horrible news I could give you this morning, and it's also the most liberating news you'll ever hear. There's never going to be a point in time in your life where you escape that sense of, God, I need you. And actually, if you get to that point, you're living in a lie. And probably something has gone disastrously wrong in your soul, and you better start talking to the people around you asking, is there poison leaking out from me? You know, that's destroying that you cannot go there. So I'm asking you again this morning, where are you tempted to secure yourself? Where are you tempted to secure yourself outside of a sense of radical dependence on God? Wherever you are trying to do that, you're worshiping an idol and it's a fool's errand. Stop. Life can be simpler for you. Life can be lighter for you. Your soul can be freer. The burden of ego, the burden of self-actualization, the burden of making it happen for yourself is not a burden that God is laying on you. It's a burden he wants to free you from. So with that, I want to take you into a moment of examination here, just as you quiet your heart. I want you to sit, close your eyes and quiet your heart. I want you to sit with that question. Where are you trying to secure yourself outside of dependence on God? And you know where you're doing it. 
We all do. For some of you, it's uh, your relationship status, like your singleness, and you're so panicky about that, you haven't learned to rest in God, and so you keep making these bizarre relationship decisions because you're not trusting God. You haven't located yourself in trust. Some of you, it's your work, and you keep jumping from, you've switched your major eight times, or you've changed jobs a dozen times in the last year or so. Because you're just trying to find that thing. You're all panicky. You need trust. Some of you, you keep thinking that if you just make more money or if you just lose that next five pounds or ten pounds, if you just get that new car, I mean, I don't know what it is for you. But you need to put your finger on that. You're trying to secure yourself outside of God. So, Holy Spirit, we're inviting you here. We're asking for your help. We don't want to live outside of the will of Jesus for us. And the will of Jesus for us is that we would be like children in the Father's house. So we pray that wherever the heavy burden of our feeling like we need to make it happen for ourselves is weighing us down and destroying our souls, wherever pride in its many species is corrupting us, we pray, liberate us. Liberate us, Holy Spirit, and lead us into the joy and the beauty and the freedom of the kingdom, we pray. I want us to just sit here and keep this attitude this posture before the Lord, we're going to be doing something a little bit different right now. Um, we usually at this point go into a time of discussion, but to conclude this morning and to conclude this series at large, uh, we're going to interface with these ideas in a little bit different way where instead of discussing, we're going to go into a time of uh, self-examination and prayer. Uh, we call that examine prayer. And we're going to turn some music on. Uh, We can go ahead and get that going just softly. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have um, a slide for every movement of the prayer that we've looked at so far. And uh, it's going to have that phrase of the Lord's Prayer. And then under it, uh, we can even put the first one up on the screen. Under it, we're going to ask ourselves and kind of interface with two questions. And these questions are are, uh, modes through which we both can assess our own hearts and souls and circumstances, but also that we bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, here I am and here's my life, and would you do something through it? Um, And I want to encourage you, this is not something we're just going through because it's cool or because it's fresh, uh, and we're not just filling in something different for the remainder of our time this morning, but this is profoundly sacred ground right now. Anytime we come to the Lord and say, Lord, here I am, the prayer of the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxieties. See if there's any impure way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what we're doing. So I want to begin our time together. The first movement, the first prayer, the phrase of the Lord's prayer that we looked at was our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what areas of your life have you begun to believe that your Father is distant from you? And in what ways have you made your life about your life? 
to sit, uh, journal if you want, bring it before the Lord, really get real with this thing. But uh, God, we pray that you'd search us and know us. We pray that you lead us in the way everlasting this morning. Open up our eyes to see you on the journey, to see you as the source, to see you as the one who this is all about. And would you reorient and realign our souls and the entirety of our lives into that, that it is you, this close God who has made himself available and who this is all about. God bless you guys as you nuance, pray through, unpack these ideas. Thank you, Lord.
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, would you forgive us for when we measure our emotional state as the barometer of your proximity to us? God, would you forgive us for when we view circumstances And, and, and assume that the circumstances of our lives and the states of our souls are who you are. When we're suffering, when we're hurting, when we're tired or exhausted, God, would you forgive us for letting those things define our view of you? Lord, would you forgive us for our idols of progress? Would you forgive us of our idols of success? Lord, would you be the one who's supremely honored and revered in our lives. And the one who is the source and the one who is close and the one who journeys with us, who is the Lord of our journey on the road. Let's go to the next one. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the questions here are what competing kingdoms in my life need to be displaced and brought under the rule of King Jesus? And what mutinous sin have I allowed to fester in my life? This is not a feel good one, but what areas of our lives need to be overthrown and brought under the Lordship of Jesus? What areas are we allowing to fester in the dark? Instead of saying, Jesus, it's all yours. My allegiance is wholly and completely yours. Let's process. Let's pray. Let's go to him. Keep pressing, guys. Don't let yourself lull. Don't get bored here. But just talk to your father who is near, who has made himself available. Lord, we are yours. Search us and know us, O God.
King Jesus, we ask that everything in our lives would be brought under your Lordship. Every single thing that's lived in the darkness in our lives, would you shine the light of the kingdom on it? Would you overthrow sexual sins? Would you overthrow arrogance and pride? Would you overthrow radical self-sufficiency? Would you overthrow independence? And in its place, would you create in us a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in us? Would you cast us not from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us, but would you restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us? Let it be so. Let all be brought under your lordship this morning and for the entirety of our lives. And young adults, we have a prayer that we're going to pray together this prayer of confession that the church has been praying for centuries. And I'd love for us to just, where we're seated, to pray these prayers out loud together as a confession of our dependence on God and our sin that we inevitably fall prey to. So let's pray this together in faith and from the depths of our souls. Come on. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Third slide. Third movement. It's prayer provision. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In what areas of my life have I bought the lie that my Father in heaven will fail to meet my needs? And what daily bread, forgiveness, or deliverance do I need to ask the Lord of? What are those areas? Think on it, process it, bring it to the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread, Father.
Father, we come to you as the one who knows our needs before we even ask. That before a word is on our tongue, oh God, you know it completely. So would you give us the daily bread, the forgiveness, the deliverance that we need? God, would you give us the daily bread of finances? Some of us just depleted finances, needing um, breakthrough. Some of us vehicles, our vehicles have died this past week or last month. The daily bread. God, some of us need stability in our relationships. Where some friendships or familial relationships are just running haywire and short-circuiting. We're asking for the daily bread of stability and of grace and of health. God, some of us are just harboring toxic things in our souls. Would you give us the daily bread of deliverance? Jesus, would you be our deliverance? Would you meet every need according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus? We believe you for it because you are the God who knows the needs of the sparrows and who clothes the grass of the field. And how much more, Jesus says, will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? This is your father you're dealing with. Finally, the last one. Keep pressing, young adults. You're doing great. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the question Pastor Andrew posed to us this morning. Where are you trying to secure yourself outside of your trust in God? Search us, God. Know us. Father, you said that if we don't become like little children, then we will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. So our prayer is, would you make us children? 
God, for some in here who have just been jaded. Lord, for some who have grown cold and cynical and critical. Would you restore the wonder and awe of childlikeness? God, would you restore to us a radical faith that says, I am dealing with my Father here, and in him there is no lack, and in him there is supply, and in him there is grace and peace and life and hope and joy and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with my Creator. Make us children. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us of assuming that life is our own and taking things and white-knuckling our lives in our own hands. But God, maybe for the first time in some of our lives this morning, would you help us to begin releasing that? Help us release our grip on our lives and take up your yoke, which is easy, and your burden, which is light, dependence, trust, humility, faith, childlikeness. pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, amen. Pastor Andrew, you want to come up and uh, give us a benediction, lead us in the Lord's Prayer, whatever you got for us. Stand together, and uh, you can kill the music back there. The, uh, the Lord's Prayer begins with calling on God to sanctify his name, and when we end with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, we're ending with doxology. And so I thought it'd just be good to sing the doxology together. If you know it, if you don't know it, you're going to catch on real fast. You ready? Here we go. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. As you go from this place, may you go knowing that the Father loves you and secures your life from beginning to end. May you go knowing that Jesus is your older brother who leads you into trust. And may you go knowing that the Spirit goes with you to provide for your every need and to guide you into the paths of righteousness for the Lord's sake. Go with God's grace and his mercy and his peace upon you. Amen.